The information and opinions presented in this Arc Energy Ideas podcast are provided for informational purposes only and are subject to the disclaimer link in the show notes. This is the Arc Energy Ideas podcast with Peter Tertzakian and Jackie Forrest, exploring trends that influence the energy business. Welcome to the Arc Energy Ideas podcast. I'm Jackie Forrest. And I'm Peter Tertzakian. Welcome back. So, Jackie, we've got a podcast here on, well, it's for carbon policy nerds. Yeah, exactly. So if you're not a carbon policy nerd, you may find this a little bit less interesting. Mm-hmm, <laughs> but mm-hmm. hey, if you are and you're Canadian, there's some pretty important policy that's been introduced several weeks ago. July 6th was actually a huge day for carbon policy in Canada. We had the final rule for the Canadian Clean Fuel Standard come out. That was long awaited and also maybe a little less earth shattering. But we did have a draft policy that came out to discuss what the Alberta government might want to do with its large emitter program, which is called TIER. T-I-E-R, right? Yeah, Technology Innovation and Emissions Reduction, TIER. Also, in the policy news, the feds put out a discussion document about how to impose a cap on the greenhouse gas emissions from Canadian oil and gas. Now, this is, of course, a bit controversial, and it's a big topic. So we're not going to talk about it today. We'll reserve this for a future podcast. Okay, well, let's let's start with this tier program, the Alberta-based large emitter carbon pricing system. So the legislation that's been put into place requires a review by the end of this year, 2022. There's feedback and all sorts of uh, consultations that are going on. Yeah, so this came out and they're only giving a month for uh, people to put written feedback on. So it's a discussion document that proposes some changes to the policy. Now, this policy is really important. It's going to drive... I think, a big part of the uh, investments in carbon capture and storage, as well as other emissions reductions in Alberta, which is where a lot of the emissions sit in in terms of Canadian emissions from the industrial sector. So there's lots here, and I think it's worth reading. You do need to give feedback if you're going to do it in the next month. But I thought I'd just highlight two areas that I think are pretty important for the future of how this market looks and therefore how much investment mm-hmm. we may see. So, but first of all, I mean, sort of just distilling this, TIER is basically a carbon tax program. For large emitters. For large emitters yeah. over, what is it, 100,000 tons a year? Is that what yes. it is? Yeah. So large emitters, if you're a large corporate emitter, you pay a carbon tax. And this has been in place for a long time. And this is why Alberta says that we already have a carbon tax, unlike many other jurisdictions. And the money's collected then go into a fund. So part of the money goes into a separate entity that then invests in carbon reduction projects, but part of it also can be paid by buying offsets from others. Mm -hmm. So we'll get into that. So basically as a large emitter, and actually companies that are smaller than the amount you said can opt into it as well. And conventional oil and gas producers can opt into it as well. Why would they do that? Well, because it's cheap. They only have to pay a portion of their emissions if they opt into it versus Mm -hmm. being taxed on all their emissions. So most of them have done that all gets very complex. But I will say that there's kind of two areas that are being proposed, I think, that are very consequential to how the market looks. One is that they change the stringency. So today, only a small fraction of all your industrial emissions are subject to the carbon policy. It's about 12%. So why is that done? It's because if you taxed everything, they would be uncompetitive because they have to compete Mm -hmm. in the export markets. They don't set the price for the goods that they sell. And so the idea was you just charge a portion of the emissions, it gives them some incentive to reduce, but doesn't make them economically uncompetitive. Now, the idea is today that this stringency would increase by 1% per year, and the draft is saying, we're going to move this up to 2% per year. So this would help create a larger market of buyers for carbon credits. 
because all things the same, you're going to have a, have to buy many more credits in 2030 than you would if, if they didn't make so this change. So what you're change. saying is that the amount of carbon emissions that fall under the taxation regimen is going to increase potentially by 2% per year. Up from the current 1% per year. So, so, so it's 10 to 12 today. So like yeah. next year, it would be 13, the following yeah, year, 14. Right. Yeah, yeah. Instead, it's going to be 2% growth each year instead of one. And remember back when we had our CCS podcast with the BMO analyst mm-hmm. talking about the yeah. fact that if everyone invests in CCS, then there'd be so many people selling credits and not enough buyers. And what we really need to do, you know, there's a couple of levers we can do. And one of the biggest ones is to make mm-hmm. the market larger. So this would help solve that problem by, you know, every company that emits now has to buy more credits than they would have before because now more is subject to the tax. So how does that square with the competitiveness issue? Well, that's the thing. If if you're one of those people that can't reduce their emissions, maybe your emissions are very expensive mm-hmm. and you're somewhere very remote where it's hard to do CCS, then it does make your costs go higher and makes you maybe a little bit less competitive. Right. So presumably all the big emitters are going to be providing written feedback by August 7th in advance of the final ruling on these numbers that are going to come out by the end of the year. Yes, for sure. Yeah. And and I, so, the, yeah. so the large emitters are going to be arguing, well, we only want it to go up by 1% a year, not 2 and a whole bunch of other people are going to say 2 including probably the government. Is that what's going on? Well, I actually think some of the large emitters that can do CCS are going to be arguing it probably makes sense to increase the stringency because yeah. they want, that's going to help create more certainty to that carbon price, right. which is one of the big barriers why um, is holding back CCS investment right. is, is that carbon price going to be, you know, remember the BMO analyst right. said it needs to be $100 a ton. Yeah. You need and, carbon price yeah. policy certainty over a long period of time. We've talked about that before in that podcast and in other podcasts. Otherwise, who's going to spend billions of dollars if you don't have that kind of yeah. certainty? So by putting in this regimen and the increasing amount of volumes that are eligible under this program or that are mandatory under the program, actually, is offering a sense of security of policy or certainty of policy. Well, it's creating a bit more certainty that the market won't be flooded with all the CCS. Now, on the other hand, if we don't do all those CCS projects, then maybe they're, it's going to drive the price up too high, right? So, so mm-hmm. it's, it's not an easy thing. And, and I do think those folks that you know, can't actually reduce their emissions economically mm-hmm. because you know, they have, they're going to say, I don't want to have the stringency go up. So there'll be people on both sides of this, but I think if we're looking at just from the perspective of what's going to get CCS investment going in Alberta, what's going to drive billions of dollars investment in Alberta, mm-hmm. I think we need to have the stringency be increased. There's another piece to the puzzle, which is in the document, which is how much can you use credits to meet your obligation under this policy. So today, only 60% of your obligation can be met by buying credits from the market. The rest, you have to pay a tax at the posted price, which is $50 today, and it would grow to 170 by 2030 hmm. following the federal government's plan. Okay, so let's just pause and, 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 and clarify this. So by buying a credit, say, from somebody who's planted trees to somebody who's installed solar, whatever, so they buy this carbon credit for emission reduction from somebody who's done that. Yep. Only 60% of the emissions you generate can fall under that. Exactly. That, so like that, of the regimen. 10% that right. of your, all your emissions that right. you fall under this plan, right. you could only buy from yeah. the market yeah. 60%. The rest would have to be paid to the government. And as you talked about, that money goes into that emissions reduction okay. fund. Or, yeah. or 
the company works hard to reduce its emissions physically. Exactly. Physi- then they don't physically, need to pay. Which is really what they're trying to incent companies to do. So they don't have to worry about 60%, 40%, whatever. They just lower their emissions and they... And then they don't have to pay, right? So yeah, you can either they, reduce or you can go buy offsets right. and then pay the tax. Now, what the draft document proposes is that they would actually increase the amount from 60% to a much greater number that you can use offsets for. So the positive for this is, come back to that whole scenario, if everyone does CCS, there may be more people trying to sell credits than there are buyers, and we may have just an oversupplied market, and that means lower carbon prices. However, what this does is it allows a deeper amount of buyers, Mm -hmm. because now instead of having to pay tax for 40%, maybe you don't have any tax. It all can be bought with offsets. So it creates more buyers. I think it's a really good idea because, again, it it creates a deeper market. The other interesting thing is they said maybe they would make this amount dynamic, changing over time. And that would be interesting too because they could assess, well, where is the carbon market today? And they could adjust how much can be paid for on the carbon market Mm -hmm. based on, so if if it's trading low, then we'll say, hey, everything can be bought off the carbon market to increase the amount of buyers. If the carbon price is too high, you could adjust that fraction so that you could sort of create more stability and predictability in right. the carbon price, right. which is ultimately what's needed to get that CCS investment going. In yeah. Well, you know, I mean, the good news here is the tier program has been around for a long time. What's being proposed here are adjustments to that program, a little more certainty, and that's all good. You and I are carbon nerds because we have to be in our jobs here in terms of understanding energy and where energy is going. But, you know, I, I just find this like super complex. It's just like it taxes the brain even if you live and breathe it every single day. And if you thought that was complex, then there's the federal clean fuel standard. Right. So the final I mean, policy. That, yeah. yeah. I mean, this, it's, this one is really complicated. Yeah. So just as a reminder, we did have a podcast quite a while ago in the end of 2020 when this policy first came out, the draft version of it, now we have the final version. It it is delayed. People expected it to come out sooner. And they've actually delayed the implementation of this policy Mm. about six months because of all of this Mm -hmm. coming out slower. But this final policy, I will put a link to it in the show notes as well as to that draft document for the Alberta government's tier program. But, you know, as a reminder, the goal is to make liquid fuels in Canada more low-carbon and, and how to measure what is low carbon is everything from producing to refining to the end use of the fuel like you need combusting to it. combusting it has mm-hmm. to go down by about 15% compared to a baseline. Right. right. Now, initially it was all liquid fuels. The final rule is just gasoline and diesel. So they've so kind of narrowed it. Fuels is out. Yeah. Heavy fuel oils and things like that no longer are part of it as well. Mm-hmm. So it is a bit smaller in scope than initially thought about. That was kind of a surprise with the final rule. And who has to do this? Well, the fuel distributors and refiners, they need to do this. They need to make sure they comply so they can either reduce their emissions to meet this or they can buy credits from other right. people. So yeah. there's a number of ways they can reduce their emissions. The ones that we've talked about mostly are like blending with biofuels. That's right. There's sort of three categories. One is you can reduce emissions from the upstream oil and gas. You can dilute your petroleum by using a lower carbon substitute like biofuels, mm-hmm. or you can use alternatives like switching to uh, EVs or hydrogen vehicles and things that are less greenhouse gas intense on a life cycle right. basis. So, the, I mean, the upfront one, reducing upstream oil and gas emissions, the upstream 
industry is already working on it with the CCS. But I mean, upstream emissions and the whole life cycle is only like, I don't know, depending on where it is, 10 to 15% max, right? So, yeah. you know, it's... Well, 80, if you include refining, yeah, it's, it's probably 15 or a little bit greater, but in that range. 15%. So then you got to blend in the biofuels and so on and so forth, which in this current environment of food for fuels. And I remember, I don't know how long ago, it was well over a year ago, we had a biofuel industry fellow uh, talking about these issues and like, where are the biofuels going to come from? Right. Well, and his he felt that there wasn't going to be an issue there, but I think that was a long time ago. I think there's more concerns with the food prices today mm -hmm. um, and maybe the scarcity of some food that, that more and more biofuels are used. But yeah, that is one way. Now, the first generation is using food. He did talk about the second generation that uses mm -hmm. more waste products, although that isn't really a commercial thing today, but hopefully right. that would play a role as well. I do want to talk about that. Um, the first way to comply would be for these refiners to go buy credits from oil and gas producers who have reduced their emissions and, and they can use that as a credit. There was a major change in the policy that came out as the final rule from what was expected in that they're only going to allow credits to be generated for oil production that is consumed in Canada. So if the oil is going to be exported, you can't generate credits. So most of the oil produced in Canada goes to the United States. Exactly. So this really changes the opportunity for oil and gas producers. This policy was hoped to be a real driver to reduce emissions from oil production and including CCS projects. But now it's a little less certain that it will be because it looks like only a very small portion. You know, I worked it out in Western Canada. Only about 20% of the oil we produce goes towards Canadian consumption. And even then there's big error bars on that because there's a lot of complexity in figuring that out. Well, First of all, some of the supply we have is not all from Canada. Some of it is, you know, they blend in condensate from the U.S. So, you know, our oh, supply yeah. in itself isn't all Canadian. On top of that, our refiners, they refine a whole blend of, of crude oils at different times. And some of the refined products are consumed here. Some go to the U.S. Like, it's just really complex. It's going to be very um, complex. We import some refined products. If you limit the amount of credits that can come from the upstream, that necessarily means that more has to come from blending and downstream. Yeah, this is positive for biofuels and for electric cars, for people that want to generate credits so in those like two a, areas. How does a refiner get involved with electric cars? Well, they could put in their own electric car charging stations, you know, throughout Canada, at their existing retail stations, if they have that. But they could just buy credits from other people that are have charging infrastructure that then sell them the credits. So, so basically, yeah. this is sort of like a, a mechanism for the liquid fuel refiner the downstream to fund the adoption of electric vehicles. Yeah, that's one way. But, but you know, they don't have to do that. Like I said, they could just, it could cut another private investor mm -hmm. could put these things in with the idea of generating credits, the, the credits and selling and them selling to a refiner. Right. You know, what's nice about this, this is the Canada's first pan-Canadian carbon market. So across the country, people will be able to generate credits and sell them mm -hmm. to the refiners. So I think that's positive. But yeah, back to your, your first point. This is negative for the opportunity to reduce in the oil sector, but it is a positive for how much biofuels and electric cars and other yeah. alternatives like hydrogen. And, I mean, they even allow credits to be generated from compressed natural gas vehicles mm -hmm. or low-carbon you know, propane vehicles. If you think about the, the biofuels, like, again, I'm, 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 a, I'm a skeptic, honestly. Like, this whole food for fuel at a time when we've got a global fuel crisis 
ultimately the, the consumer is going to have to pay, right? Because you blend in more biofuels that are more expensive than just petroleum coming out of the ground than, well, or refined and coming out of Like, I don't get it. Well, I will tell you that in the actual document, there is an implication section and the government is assuming that like renewable diesel, HDRD it's called, would grow eight times from now till, if you look at the kind of 2030 to 2040 time mm-hmm. period, and that ethanol will double and that biodiesel would grow five times. So yeah, there's going to be some major growth. I think people in the biofuel well, industry think that that is sustainable and that, you know, this a lot of this growth isn't going to happen in the next couple of years. It's further out because although this policy says you need to reduce your emissions by 15%, it's kind of more to the latter part of this, mm-hmm. this the 2030 time period where so you see wh- those. So when does all this kick in? What, what are the, well, what? It, it goes into effect July 2023, but the first few years there isn't really a lot of change because the existing biofuels we already mm-hmm. have and there are requirements in Canada to blend a certain amount of biofuels already are going to be enough to meet the first few years of the policy. It's only kind of in the 27 time period, according to the government modeling, that new things would have to happen, either more biofuels being blended than today or more credits coming from the oil sector or more EV charging. And so it's a few years off, but we are going to have to see more growth in biofuels. And I think that is a question we could have on a future podcast to someone that's really looking into the constraints today. Yeah. Because I think when we had that podcast before, it wasn't viewed to be a constraint yeah. in terms of the food stocks. I, I do want to come back, though, to that compliance category one, which is reducing emissions from oil. You know, that is a major change to say that only 20% or so of the oil and gas projects are going to be able to uh, generate emissions, or maybe only 20% of all the emissions that are are reduced can qualify. I have a big question on how how the heck are you even going to do that? Like, if I'm a upstream producer in Grand Prairie who sells, puts my oil in a pipeline, I have no idea where it goes. How do I know if my oil is exported or consumed in Canada? How do I know what fraction of it might be? Um, I don't know how they're going to do it technically. I mean, there's one way to do it where you just say, we'll do it at the large scale and that everybody gets the same rule. So my math would show maybe about 20% of all the emissions reductions from oil should qualify because that's in Western Canada. Mm -hmm. Maybe you just say to everybody, that's what you get. And there's certainty there. But if you're actually going to try to figure out which oil projects are are actually, you know, consumed in Canada and which ones are exported. Yeah, and, and by the way, that changes month to month. It's not like consistent throughout the year. There'd be no certainty to how many credits you can actually generate. And that's not going to be good for investment. So I think I have a lot of questions on just how they're going to implement that. Yeah, there are a lot of questions. The good news is that this legislation, it seems, has more clarity and finalized, like what's included, what isn't, how is it going to theoretically work. So it's good that we have the heads up on this, but I feel like we need to bring on the podcast somebody from the Biofuels Industry Association and somebody from the Canadian Liquid Fuels Association to really understand the impacts of what this means and ultimately what it also means to to consumers and the price of the fuels. Right. Well, yeah, in terms of the supply, because that growth rate for biofuels, is that realistic now that we really are going to depend more on biofuels? Mm -hmm. Look, I'm not saying I'm against biofuels. I'm just saying that the threshold for using biofuels in a food versus energy debate has got to be a lot higher. I'm just saying that, you know, backing companies and it's just, it's just, it's just got to be a higher standard that has to be applied. In terms of the cost, though, there was 
information in the report around the cost, and you can even do math yourself to figure out the cost. The government is expecting by 2030, the cost could be in the range of 10 or 14 cents per liter. Uh, I did some math. You know, it's probably going to be pretty minimal initially, maybe around two cents a liter when it starts in July of 2023. Because I was thinking, well, how popular is the government going to be if they put in a policy that adds like a bunch of costs at the pump? But it's probably going to be pretty minimal initially. But by 2030, maybe in the range of 10 to 14 cents is what they're predicting. Okay. It's going to well, increase I, in terms you know, of the cost. Diarize me as a bit of a skeptic on this because I think the consequences of limiting the ability to generate credits and putting more of the onus on the biofuels, again, at a time when we've got a global crisis that's not likely to end anytime soon. Well, and I, I do think most of the models show that there is a limit to how much we can get from food-based biofuels, and there has to be a breakthrough where these biofuels that come from straw and waste products and wood waste and that, you know, that's the sure. sustainable sort of source of biofuels. Okay, yeah, but wood view. waste and these kind of, it's actually remarkably small in terms of addressing the big picture issue. Well, you know, if they get to the point, you know, there are modeling that show like, for example, when you grow wheat, the straw and all that, that gets kind of tilled back into the land. And we don't need all of that to be tilled back into the land. And if, if you look at all the husks on corn, there is actually a lot of biomass there mm -hmm. today that, that, that would be a good source of supply. We just haven't found a way to do that in a economic, efficient way at scale. And if we do figure that out, I think there'd be a lot more supply okay. there. Than well, let's think. get an expert. Yeah. I mean, this is an area that uh, certainly I don't know a lot about, but I think at the high level, there is, again, ethical and supply-demand issues. Well, and this comes back to this sort of surprise news here that the oil industry is only going to be able to have a small fraction of all their emissions reductions qualify mm -hmm. because it does put more pressure on biofuels. That's helpful for people in that business. But if, if all you care about is if all emissions are equal, then do you care if they come from using lower carbon biofuels or from reducing emissions from oil? And um, there's plenty of opportunity in Canada to reduce emissions from oil where biofuels may be, like you say, more limited by how much feedstock there is. Mm -hmm. So Okay. Well, it'll be a story that we'll continue to follow. Well, we'll wrap this up. That was our episode for the carbon policy nerds out there. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it on the app that you listen to and tell someone else about us. For more ideas and insights, visit arcenergyinstitute.com.